the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Hello and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Joe Kipinti. I'm Drew Scott. Today's episode is the debut of the Too Late Show segment on the Radical Secular Podcast. These segments will feature my one-on-one conversations with guests I've selected on a range of topics. I believe that one of the best ways we can make our message of universal justice and universal human flourishing accessible to a broad audience is to apply the ideas we care about to real life through storytelling. On today's Too Late Show segment, my friends Stephanie Holler and Gwyn Kruger join me to discuss, among other things, Stephanie's recent article published on PharmaLive.com related to the representation of transgender and gender nonconforming folks in the healthcare industry. And before that, Joe, Drew, and I will discuss the clusterfuck that is Afghanistan. (laughs) But first... I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post on Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And we also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's get into the t-shirts. Joe, what do you got for me, buddy? So, this is like, I'm an old record, but I keep doing talking about the same, <laughs> but... You Very nice. There is no planet B. Very and, nice. Um, that is so true. Uh, yeah. The other cool thing about it is I have a tattoo of the same sort of tree of life, but simplified right, ah. on, my, on my shoulder. Uh, and it's like, this is, yeah, we can't talk about it all the time, right? I mean, you get fatigued. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, even though it is just so fucking important, but a little mention once in a while, just, just like Star Trek, you know? Color yeah. change and then Star Trek. We gotta, think, we, go ahead. No, that was it. I think that you're right. And I think that we should be rehab our Star Trek thing that somehow it comes up either incidentally or purposefully in every show. I think we should do the same thing with climate change. No, we don't have to beat the drum every single episode for the entire episode. But it is that important of a thing. I mean, it is the by the most important thing. There is no more important thing. It's our home. That's it. No planet B. No planet B. Drew, what do you got, buddy? Um, well, I knew we'd be talking about Afghanistan today, and so <laughs> given the state of you know United States foreign policy, both now and throughout modern history, I thought this one would be pretty good. It's a uh, GI Joe Jason Voorhees mashup shirt. <laughs> so it's G- so it's GI everybody out there. It's GI Joe, but with <laughs> a, a Jason Voorhees uh, sort of mashup. It's awesome. It says GI Jason. That's a pretty intense mashup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect. Yeah. And um, and uh, so and and you know back in the eighties and the nineties, I feel like they called American fighters GIs a lot more, right? Like that sort right. of has yeah. gone out of out of fashion. In Vietnam too. Oh yeah, Vietnam. That was big in Vietnam for sure. A GI walking down the street, da da da. da you yeah. know for sure, for sure. Uh, yeah. So so good. I was just gonna say the the whole GI Joe franchise was reborn. Uh, in the 1980s out of like largely, you know, Reaganistic nationalism, uh-huh. you know, that's uh-huh. why they felt comfortable bringing that toy line back 
uh, after so many years of non-existence. Yeah, and then because patriotism was popular at the time. <laughs> and then you had the huge series Rocky, right? The Rocky. Oh my God, yeah. the Rocky series. They were Absolutely. Huge. Huge. Yeah. I, I, I went back and I've watched the first one, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago. And I was like, first of all, taking it back at how low budget it is. Like, wow. First you know, you're one, like, yeah. you're like, holy shit. And how young Stallone is. But also, right, like it really captures that, you know, that before it went completely off the rails and some of the later ones, it really captured this like a, a sentiment that was real, a forgotten soldier coming home from coming home from Vietnam, right? Looking for his buddies, all of whom are dead. I mean, that was a re very real story, especially in the 1980s, as like those those Vietnam War vets got to an age to be a little bit more reflective, you know? Yeah, and also Rocky Three, I think, was a Mujahideen, right? Is that That's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, my God. You're absolutely yeah. right. Of course. That was like that. You want to talk about jingoistic. I mean, like, right. wow. Oh, was comical. Was it was bad. <laughs> it was yeah. so bad. Uh, Rambo Rambo Three is like that too, where yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're defending the uh, the freedom fighters against the. Uh, I think that's the, what I messed the up. Evil yeah, Russians. Oh yeah, yeah. okay. Rambo, so maybe yeah. that's the one we're it's thinking of. It's yeah, Rambo Three. Ram oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm mixing up Rambo hey. and 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 Rocky too. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm doing the same yeah. thing. I just I, I just did a whole talk about Rambo, not Rocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should I have said like it was my fault. I should have said Rambo to begin with. Yeah. Well. You know, we, yeah. We, well, yeah. Well, anyway, I was um, like, is that the one with Ivan Drago? Yeah, yeah. I was getting <laughs> them all like mixed up. Uh, I'm looking at Drew and he's like, Drew's giving us this kind of friendly, but kind of peculiar look. What the hell are you, <laughs> what the hell are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. So my shirt today, um, I is that I, I'm wearing my uh, intersectionality shirt, uh, trans lives, uh, LGBTQ lives, black lives, etc. So um, I'll just show it off. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So important. Absolutely. Um, and we talked a lot about that uh, on, on the guest segment um, that is pre-recorded, so I can talk about it like as if it it, it it already exists because it already exists. And we talked about um, we talked about intersectionality a lot. And I think that's sort of an important, uh, important element. So, well, look, um, we're going to have to let's get into the body of the show now. And um, that means we're going to talk about Afghanistan. Uh, as I say frequently on this show, I believe our audience is pretty well informed, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time doing the play-by-play -play of everything that's happened. Um, if you don't know what's happened, and uh, you can check out the New York Times, they've really covered this very, very well. But I will do some recapping here because I want to draw some comparisons between the collapse of the 20-year American-led effort in Afghanistan and the decade-long American-led effort in Vietnam and Southeast Asia in the middle 20th century. Um, and we're going to talk about that, Joe, because you and I have a little conversation to have about that. <laughs> um, so, but let's begin with some background information about the Taliban. I'm going to read some excerpts from uh, the New York Times piece that I was mentioning. Quote, who are the Taliban? The Taliban arose in 1994 amid the turmoil that came after the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Afghanistan in 1989. They used brutal public punishments, including floggings, amputations, and mass executions to enforce their rules. Who are the Taliban leaders? The top leaders of the Taliban have spent years on the run, in hiding, in jail, and dodging American drones. <clears throat> the movement's supreme leader is Haibatullah Akhundzada, and its political leader is Abdul Ghani Baradar. 
They are emerging now from obscurity, but little is known about them or how they plan to govern. I have an inkling. The Taliban claim to be more tolerant than they were in the 90s, even willing to work with women. But have they really cast off their extremist ideology or is it all a ruse? And what will happen to women in Afghanistan? The last time the Taliban were in power, they barred women and girls from making, uh, from taking most jobs or going to school. Afghan women have made many gains since the Taliban were toppled, but now they fear that ground may be lost as the militants retake power. And finally, what does the Taliban victory mean for terrorist groups? The United States invaded Afghanistan ostensibly 20 years ago in response to terrorism, and many worry that Al-Qaeda and other radical groups will again find safe haven there, end quote. And uh, I'd like to now touch on the Taliban's astonishingly fast recapture of Afghanistan. And again, the New York Times reports, quote, <clears throat> in early May, a Taliban, I found this, this passage very, very compelling. In early May, a Taliban commander telephoned Mohammed Jalal, a tribal error in Baglan province in northern Afghanistan, and asked him to deliver a message to the Afghan troops at, at the several bases in his district. If they do not surrender, we will kill them, Mr. Jalal was told. He and other tribal leaders complied. After several rounds of negotiations, two government bases and three outputs surrendered without a fight. More than 100 security forces handed over weapons and equipment and were sent home unarmed. The Taliban strategy of coercion and persuasion was repeated across the country, unfolding for months as a focal point of the insurgents' new offensive this year. The militants cut multiple surrender deals that handed them bases and ultimately entire uh, provincial command centers, culminating in a stunning military blitz this summer that put the militants back in power two decades after they were defeated by the United States and its allies. Each surrender, large or small, handed the Taliban more weapons and more vehicles and vitally more control over roads and highways, giving insurgents freedom to move rapidly and collect the next surrenders as the security forces were progressively cut off from ammunition, fuel, food, and most importantly, salaries. The Taliban triumph came just four months after President Biden announced on April 14th that he would honor the deal with the Taliban signed by the Trump administration to withdraw all American troops beginning on May 1st. The announcement, the announcement sank the morale of an already beleaguered security force. The Taliban seized the advantage in May, crushing government troops now forced to defend themselves with only occasional long-distance American airstrikes to help them hold off Taliban surges. The Taliban received money, supplies, and support from Pakistan, Russia, and Iran that included 10,000 to 20,000 Afghan volunteers sent from Pakistan, a Taliban safe haven, and thousands more Afghan villagers who joined the militants when it became clear they were winning. The volunteers swelled Taliban ranks to more than 100,000 fighters. That was more than enough to crush a government force listed at 300,000 on paper, but hollowed out by corruption, desertion, and, stagger and a staggering casualty rate. The key to victory was the Taliban's plan to threaten and cajole security forces and government officials into surrendering, first at the checkpoint and outpost level, then the district and provincial level as they swept through the countryside. They contacted everyone and offered the chance to surrender or switch sides with incentives, including money and rewarding people with appointments afterward. The Taliban, the Taliban exploited Afghans' resentment towards a corrupt and ineffective government that was unable to supply its forces or mount an effective media campaign to rally the public to its side. By contrast, the Taliban pounded home a message through social media and village elders that the government was illegitimate, 
and the militants would soon restore their Islamic rule. Their outreach was fantastic. Their planning was very good. They managed the element of surprise. They capitalized on intra-tribal, ethnic, religious, and ideological differences to win people over. And they made the most of the people's frustrations with the government. Now, and quote, I've now I've that's a lot. I admittedly picked passages here which bolster my view that there are some parallels, stark parallels between the collapse of the U.S.-backed Afghan uh, troops in 2021 and the collapse of the U.S.-backed South Vietnamese troops in 1974. Now, Joe... Um, sort of like I'm going to poke the bear a little bit here. <laughs> you said on social media this week that the war in Afghanistan is not the war in Vietnam. Why don't you go ahead and defend that position? Well, what I was trying to say is mm-hmm. that the consequences are very different. Mm-hmm. And there are some similarities because basically, you know, before I get to that, a lot of this is really comes out of colonialism, right? And the way that the British dealt with colonies is very really contributed to creating a very fragmented society. It was fragmented to begin with. I mean, it's a very mountainous region. Mountainous people tend to be relatively isolated. They still connect, but less so. And to, you know, the British and, and the big colonial powers had two reasons why they would take over territory, right? One is to have resources, like in India. India was a massive resource uh, base for them. And the other one is as buffer states in their fight, in their contests with other colonial powers. And so the British weren't interested so much in resources with Afghanistan. They just wanted a buffer against the Russians at the time between the, the Russia and India. And so they did whatever they needed to do to keep control of that territory. And the way they did it was by dividing and conquer, by, by partitioning, 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 because it was a very spirited movement in Afghanistan backed by internationalists, right? The same people who they were were fighting, you know, Franco in the 1920s and 30s, right? That international sort of anti-colonial movement, the socialists and all that, they were there too. And they want and, and they're all about unity, right? And so the, the British were really fighting the locals and this group and by by really just dividing and conquering, dividing over and over and over again. They left that legacy in that country. Um, and it's been that way ever since the Afghanistan has been just brutally divided by its own history and then by colonialism. And so when, you know, when, when George Bush went in there after 9-11 and decided that nation building was going to be the thing, right? It was everyone was that knew what you know. Anybody in the know was saying, "Wow, this is going to be tough." <laughs> what you don't know what the hell you're getting yourself into? This nation building here, really here, oh God, in all places. Yeah, and, and I'm not against nation building, uh, like just per se. There's some reasons to do it sometime, like for you know to do that and so forth. But in this case, it was a massive challenge. And so what do you learn if you are living in a very fragmented society that's been going through civil war for decades, right? From, from the Soviets to the Mujahideen to the Taliban, what do you learn to do? You gotta go with the winners, right? Mm-hmm. You're, a little, you're a little segment of society, you have your own little force, but you gotta, you gotta go with the, what's happening with the currents of power. And so the Taliban did that. They, that was their strategy, right? They, yeah. they wanted to show themselves as legitimate in that way yes. and get everybody else to join them because that's what you do in Afghanistan. 
you don't have a national identity right. of like and so if you're in, in the afghan government or the military and you've been trained and all that you're doing it because you're getting a salary you're getting training you're getting legitimacy you're getting a life and you're doing it for your family you're doing it even for your community but you're not doing it for the nation right right that, that's because, important and so when it came down to it why fight with a side that looks like it was going to lose because remember <laughs> the, the united states had started to withdraw way back years right. and years back right so the, the writing was on the wall that that taliban were going to eventually take back the the place and so people said why should we have a war? Let's just get it over with. We're it I mean, <laughs> I know it's super smart, frankly. I mean, they're like, look, I mean, why? Let's see if we can avoid some bloodshed here. I want to give Drew, I want to give you a chance to react, Drew, um, if you have any comments on any of that. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think Joe made a good point about the consequences being different. I don't think um, Vietnam and a Taliban controlled Afghanistan in terms of their place in the world are going to be anything alike right um but i do think christoph has a point and that in terms of america's foreign policy approach to both scenarios with this kind of vague idea of nation mm -hmm. building without really understanding the history and the culture of the people they intended to conquer um, and while also underestimating them and underestimating their uh devotion and underestimating their resilience. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I think those parallels are too stark to ignore. I think I think Christoph is right about that. But I do think Joe is also right about the consequences being different. Yeah, yeah well I, said. I think that's right. And Joe, I, I, I want to clarify here. I mean, I, I set this up as sort of like, a, like, a, you know, as some sort of adversarial thing. And it's not really, because um, I think we're both actually right. And that is that, um, you know, and I think you mentioned this, and it's absolutely true. We're talking about Handmaid's Tale when we're talking about um, when we're talking about the Taliban, and we're talking about that radical. It's, I, I would say radical Islam, but it's actually just Islam, right? Like it's just basically what the what the what the book says, right? If you right. actually, it's like if somebody did what the actual Bible said, we'd be enslaving people and killing people's children, right? Like so, yeah. I mean, like if you actually do what those books say, you have you get really insane outcomes, and to and I agree with you that there's a stark difference between that and the North Vietnamese. For all their brutality, there's definitely a stark difference. I want to point out some some things uh, for our audience and for everyone that I, uh, I'm, as everyone probably knows if you've been listening to this show, I am very much a Vietnam War buff. I'm low-key, high-key, frankly, obsessed with it. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I, I wrote down some steps. It's a, a, a nine-step scenario. Um, I'll try, I won't, maybe I won't hit all, all of them, but anyway, here we go. One, the United States invades Afghanistan with nation building and or proxy war aspirations. Two, the United States invades without an exit strategy or any understanding of the country's history or internal tribal dynamics. Three, the United States spends billions of dollars, thousands of lives over multiple decades building a U.S.-friendly government in Afghanistan and hires and trains a well-equipped indigenous fighting force to defend it. Four, the fighting force is made up of, of a handful of diehard patriots who embrace American ideals, but mostly it's made up of guys with of dubious loyalty who are there for a paycheck. The entire force is trained to fight a rich man's war, relying on airstrikes and high-tech equipment. Five, the United States military and civilian leaders trick themselves and then the American people into believing that their progress building a government and military that looks great on paper is tantamount to winning the war. 
Six, a well-organized indigenous resistance movement backed by America's adversaries in the international community mounts a low-grade but consistent guerrilla war against American and Afghan forces. Seven, the resistance movement absorbs staggering casualties, standing up to American and Afghan fire, firepower, but its leaders realize that each American life it takes inches them closer to American disengagement. Six, public opinion in the United States turns against the war, and it becomes clear, even to the hawkish among American politicians, that the war is unwinnable and it's time to get out of Afghanistan. Seven, America announces that it's pulling out of Afghanistan, believing its own propaganda and suggests that the force and believing its own propaganda, that the force and government it's built there will, will stand and fight the guerrilla forces. Eight, the guerrilla forces go on an all-out offensive, but rather than violently crushing the Afghan forces, which they certainly could do, they opt to appeal to shared identity, threats, and frustration with the U.S.-backed government to win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people, and thereby win Afghanistan back with minimal violence. And finally, nine, the United States engaged in a scrambling and embarrassing exit from Afghanistan. Now, I could replace Afghanistan with Vietnam, and 99% of what I just said would be absolutely true. Like all those exact yeah. same things happened in Vietnam. It's remarkable. remarkable. The, fir the, the first thing that I thought of when I saw those images of, you know, the planes taking off with the people scrambling to cling to them. I mean, aside from the, uh, the horror of mm -hmm. the whole thing was I thought of those helicopters being pushed into the sea yep. at the end of the Vietnam War. That was the first thing that I thought of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Go ahead, Joe. Again, I mean, what's different is when the Viet Cong took over Vietnam, they instituted a constitution that was protective of, of women, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. They believed yeah. in science. Mm -hmm. They tried to modernize their society. They created schools, health care. All of that. So you might not like the fact that they were communists, so quote unquote, <laughs> right? You might not like the, some of the things they did. It was fine. And that's a legitimate argument and a legitimate critique to make about the, Viet the Vietnamese. But they did all these things because they're part of modernity. They're, they're part of the Enlightenment project. That's not the case with the Taliban. They really are very medieval. And yeah. they don't believe in science. And they're very brutal towards women and girls. And, um, and they are... You know, they they cut off people's body parts to punish them. I mean, it's it's medieval. It's it's a very very different kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, and we can't forget that consequence ultimately. And that's what I was talking about, mm -hmm. guys, more than anything else. I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Got completely hundred percent that the history of it, the way it unfolded, is is stunningly similar to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, your point is a good one. And again, like I mean, I I. I we're not both i think that we're both right right like i mean it's different in these ways the and the critical thing and we've all three of us have talked about this online sean talked about this online this week and one thing that whatever our interpretations of it are there is no doubt that we are women are fucked like that yeah. is absolutely right women were fucked even in the modern afghanistan now they are beyond fucked i mean beyond fucked it is it is i i just can't imagine a, a friend of mine uh lives in colorado and he is a mountain he's a rock climber um and uh matt if you're out there good to see you um and he you know he talked he had connected with a group of rock climb mountaineers 
in, in you know the mountains in Afghanistan, right? There's like the biggest, sure. some of the most hardcore yeah. mountains there are. And so these women had gotten gotten involved in this, and there was like this sort of they had a you know an Instagram account, and they were out there doing this stuff. And it's like, what's going to happen to them? Like, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's why I felt so horrible for those people running for that plane oh. because those are the people who understand all of this. Exactly. You know. Those are the people who understand the consequences of a Taliban takeover and know what that means and know what, you know, what is essentially, you know, religious uh, tyranny. They they understand uh, what the consequences of that are for them and their families. And it's I mean, I'm a person who's afraid of flying like I'm Mm -hmm. I'll get on a plane if I if I need to. But I'm kind of a nervous. Well, not anymore. I mean, like in the before time and the long, long ago. (laughs) Yeah. But. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a nervous flyer. I don't like flying. So when I see stuff like that and I see people dropping off of the plane as it's taking off those images, I mean, it, um, it's hard to put into words, you know, it's really, really horrifying. It's hard. It's horrifying. And it just go, and it just demonstrates the desperation. Yeah. 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 And again, I don't want to, I really want to emphasize how this is different because like you think about you know it's very much medieval and medieval i thought when you said i wanted to mention I mean, that's yeah. really think great about medieval. this okay think about the how in europe they used to burn women as witches tens of thousands like maybe even more than that we don't really know but huge percentage who who were they burning they were burning any woman who was had the gall to st- to do any kind of agency or any kind yep. of minor power in their in their village yep. you know the herbalists or whatever it might and and it was terrorism right did, why did you do that because it kept them in their place and what happens in afghanistan they don't burn they don't use they don't use pyres but you know what happens a lot? You know, throwing lit, uh, car acid battery in people's Ugh, women's faces. Just like right? what the it, fuck? You know, stonings. It's the same thing. It's and it's not just the government because the government sets the tone, right? Sure. And allows any fucked up, you know, brutal man to be able to be abusive and with no consequences. So it's it even happens in in the homes, not not just by government forces Absolutely. doing this to women. And they don't get to go to school. Yeah, literally. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is just oppression on a on an almost unimaginable scale. And what you mentioned, uh, Joe, is really important. Is that right? Women have difficulty getting justice against their husbands in the United States, right? In constitutional democracies with robust systems of accountability. Yeah, it's so a challenge. It's a challenge. Like, I mean, that yeah. is an uphill battle constantly, right? Can you, like, and, and it just go, and that is in a modern democracy, right? Uh, such that it is democracy. Um, and, you know, these women in Afghanistan now, like, in, they are trapped in their homes, they can't work. They can't read, and you're trapped in your home, and you are a slave. It's it's slavery. It's straight up slavery, is what it is. Straight up slavery. You know. Yeah, the, the level of oppression is is frightening. I mean, you know, seeing shopkeepers paint over, you know, images of women that they had on the sides of the buildings. You know, posters and stuff, having to cover that up because they know the Taliban's coming. They know what they'll do to them if they don't cover it up. Right. 
right? It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Well, uh, let, let's let's move on. Um, I, I, it wouldn't be an episode of the Radical Secular Podcast without some mention of Star Trek. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and read the language of Starfleet's General Order 1, along with uh, some interpreting regulations. It'll be just a minute. I know I've been doing a lot of reading today, but uh, it's just that kind of episode. There's just a lot to talk about, you know. Um, so here it is. Quote, no starship may interfere with the normal development of any alien life or society. General Order 1 is better known as the Prime Directive. It supersedes all other laws and directives with the exception of the Omega Directive, which I don't even know what that is. Starfleet officers are prohibited from directly intervening in the natural outcome of any internally motivated political or military conflict, even if not intervention will result in the extinction of an entire species or the end of all life on a planet or star system. Now, Joe... You have firsthand experience with the intended and unintended consequences of U.S.-led incursions into developing countries. Will you comment on that experience in general and perhaps also in terms of the Prime Directive? Another way of coming sure. at this question is what sh what should have America done or not done in Afghanistan? Go ahead, Joe. Sure. Have at it. Uh, oh, so much here. Mm -hmm. But first, let me just follow up on another Star Trek reference. In the DS9, there's this incredible episode of Jake Sisko who gets caught in a war zone. When they were fighting the Dominion, and like he went through the the brutality of war, and and the terror of war, and the humanity of, of war, and how and the shame of feeling afraid and all that, and, and you know when you think I think about that, and I think about you know and, and, you know the people that had sacrificed themselves, all American soldiers to try, to, and a lot of them really believed in the mission. A lot of them really believed they were doing good, and really just sacrificed so much for this mission. And I want to. You know, I want to say something about them too, because you know, I'm not a warmonger. I don't, but but I do respect that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I respect it and I honor it, and I think it's important because it's not an. It's just unmanageable. You know, yeah. I've never been in a war zone like that. I can't even. Yeah. I can only say from, you know, these kinds of experiences. Uh, but what I what I have done though, I have worked with and been with and become friends with the people who have been brutalized. Uh, as directly or indirectly by American, uh, you know, imperialism and Cold War aggressiveness, you know, that has swept through the world in the, in the, in the 20th century. And we don't, we shouldn't fool ourselves how, how much the United States was involved in, in a lot of brutality in the world. Uh, I, for example, I lived in Argentina in the mid-90s, mid and it was about maybe just under 10 years after the uh, junta, the, the, the dictatorship fell there because of the Falkland War. They lost the war, they lost their legitimacy, and, and they fell. But it was a U.S.-backed, U.S.-trained, U.S.-intelligent, uh, uh, sort of uh, infused dictatorship to fight communists. And so what they would do, they created these paramilitary squads and these security squads. They would, they would sweep their landscape and look for insurgents or, you know, and who are the insurgents? Well, in this village where I was and villages like it, they, they would get, they would get their information. These, these death squads would get their information from evangelicals to the CIA to them. And the locals figured this out. So, you know, when we went there and lived in this village, they thought we were either evangelical doing the same thing or CAA agents 
right? And it took us months to really break through that and become and, and convince people that we weren't, we just researchers, right? And um, you know, the the women that I talk I talked to is one woman who was a friend of mine, and she's told me about. She was a social worker. She wasn't even a radical. She was just working with the poor. That's all it took, right? Somebody bug you know ratted her out, and wow. that was it. And she ended up in the prison. Wow. Right. And, and she had and she was you know she had pretty bad PTSD from that. It was a brutal experience. You know what they used to do? I mean, tens of thousands of people disappeared, and it came out later. They would mostly what they would do is the military would take them up on planes, fly them over the ocean, and Ugh. dump them. That is just I don't. That is except for the except for the pregnant leftist women who they would hold until they had a baby, steal their baby, and then it would kill them. Right, and th these tactics were known. They were known, right? And, and it, it was you know this kind of activity was happening all over the world in Iran, right? The Iranian Revolution happened because we were backing and funding the Ayatollah. I mean, I'm sorry, the Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. He was replaced by the Ayatollah. Mm -hmm. And the Shah of Iran had a brutal police force just like that. Yep. Right? Fund, funded by the U.S. Right? Yeah. And trained in a lot of ways. There was this, the School of Americas in the Southwest would take the elites of these countries, the colonels and so forth, would train them in a lot of these, these anti-insurgency tactics and then send them back. Yeah. Right. So, Joe, so I, I just want, I'm sorry to cut you off. I want to, though, I, because I this is sorry, so important. Passionate about this. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I want you to be, this is, it's fucking yeah. fantastic. This is exactly why I wanted to talk to you about this because it sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds to me like you have seen the, the, like the on the ground effects of U.S. sort of, you know, picking a side and backing it for whatever reasons. And a lot of that ends up with people that, like, right, and so I, from what I understand in South America, too, it's like, look, you know, it's easier to control a dictator than it is to control a democracy. A dictator can, can keep his people in line and, and, and be cozy up to America, and we all shrug our shoulders and right. turn the other way when he's throwing guys out of airplanes. Now, I do want to say that after the Cold War ended, the CIA and the military actually changed and it got much better. Yeah. The United yeah. States, much more professional, much more conscious of human rights than they were before. But sadly, you know, after 9-11, started to go down again. Not, not as bad, but in many ways, it, there's that pressure to fight and, and deal with the threat that you say, well, we're just going to put the niceties, quote unquote, out the window and do what, mm -hmm. what we need to do. And, um, but I don't, I don't want to diss the entire U.S. military. Not at all. I think no, there's some no. great people in it doing yeah. some great work. I think on this show, we're pretty careful about separating, you know, new, uh, this foreign policy or uh, imperialism, frankly, of the United States and, and Western allies with the actual people that do the work and what it means to be in the military. Uh, uh, so, and I think that's important because I, as you know, have a deep respect for the military. And Drew, I just want to give you a chance to, to comment on the um, prime directive uh, in terms of Afghanistan. Like, w like where do you, like, I mean, as a concept, I mean, just in general, do you have any thoughts? Um, you know, I, th I think it's complicated, like many things in the world are. Um, <laughs> just, I, I, I'm, I'm a... Uh, part of that generation that kind of came of age uh, in the shadow of 9-11 and mm -hmm. post 9-11 hysteria and all of that. I did not like Bush. 
I was not old enough to vote for him the first time or vote for anyone the first time, but I voted against him the second time. I was against the Iraq war completely. The Afghanistan war, I kind of understood because that was where the people who attacked us were trained and harbored. In that sense, I understand you know, a, a military reaction to that. I think that's normal for, I think, just about any country to do after an attack like that, um, go after who did it. Um, at the same time, I, I, I do kind of feel like once Obama got bin Laden, that, that probably should have just been it. You know? <laughs> right, right. Like we got the guy done, get the fuck out of there, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it's complicated. I, I, I cause it, yeah. You know, there's a lot of bad, horrible people in the world uh, that want to do bad things to America and Americans and our allies. And we can't ignore that and be complete pacifists. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we can't be imperialists or hyper-nationalists or warmongers, as, as Joe was, was talking about. Um, it's a fine line and a complicated issue. Yeah. And so to, to return back to the prime directive, because I didn't, I, I I didn't answer your question, right? I mean, um, you kind of did, but, 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 but go ahead. I was getting to it, and, yeah, and yeah, what, yeah. what Drew said fits right, right into that, right? It, it's the idea that there's a reason why in the late 1960s, in, in, the, in the, the producers of Star Trek introduced the Prime Directive into that show, they were coming out of our own history, right? Mm. They were seeing some of this stuff. They were seeing what happened with colonialism, right? In particular, Native Americans in this country. They, they, it was a reaction to our own history, why we created that sci-fi Prime Directive, right? And it didn't come out of some fantasy novel, right? It was real, right? And so, and what Drew was saying, yeah, we need to do that, but we also have to be realistic about, you know, there are some bad guys we got to deal, you know, and all that. But at least that's a guidepost for us, right? Right. And as, because, yeah. you know, they broke the Prime Directive all the time and stuff. Yes. Trick, right? yes. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was a guidepost, right? It was a guidepost. It was right? a yeah. guidepost. And I mean, you like you had a, a Picard who was more or less obsessed with it. You had like, I mean, a Kirk who was just like fire from the hip with it. Although he was better. I think Janeway was probably the worst. Like, just like, like, just fast and loose with the Prime Directive. But again, um, it's context specific. And I think what you, what we're getting at here, like, so um, in, one of the important things, I, I think the rule makes sense because you just cannot, your best laid plans, right? And uh, it's sort of, you just don't know what the outcome is going is going to be. And when you start going down that road now, um, I want to sort of uh, wrap up our conversation uh, here or the last chunk of our conversation. So I personally really support Biden's quite imperfect approach to ending the quagmire investigate in Afghanistan. I think he did the right thing. Um, I certainly don't speak for all members of the radical secular team when I say that, and I do think reasonable people can disagree. Now, given the position in which the Biden administration finds itself in terms of Afghanistan, what is the right thing to do by the Afghan people uh, like now? And how is that different from the practical, politically viable thing to do? Um, maybe, Drew, you want to you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what I we think, do? I mean, I think we should make our best efforts to get people out who want to get out. You know, um, we, we did the same thing for South Vietnamese when when they wanted to flee that regime. Um, it's complicated, you know, it's because we did make, you know, uh, something of an, uh, you know, uh, a, a promise to those people. We we're committed to, to helping them. 
and they helped us to you know to fight people who were our enemies so i don't think leaving them high and dry is the right thing at the same time after 20 years of military support and billions of dollars who knows how many lives lost on all sides it's like wh- where are we what are we going for here what, mm-hmm. what i don't know man it's it's a mess and i i, I think yeah it, just lastly i want to say that the the elephant in the room here is religion mm-hmm. yes this is a show called the radical secular and <laughs> I, I would be remiss if i did not bring that up because you know, I think a lot of people on the left are reluctant to criticize Islam mm-hmm. in particular because it is a, a religion practiced by largely brown people. Mm-hmm. And liberals don't want to criti- criticize the br- brown people for pretty much anything <laughs> these days. <laughs> true. Yeah. Right. So it puts you in this box where, you know, you want to be the multicultural rainbow where you welcome all ideas and cultures, but what if culture A wants to murder and enslave culture B? What if culture B thinks that all LGBT people and women should all be subjugated? What if, you know, culture yeah. D thinks that all other cultures should be wiped out? I mean, it doesn't, it's not that simple. Yeah. So, but it, but it, until you address um, getting everyone on the same page in terms of accepting the terms of reality of this world that we're all in through <laughs> science and evidence and you know uh, uh the scientific method until you get everyone on that page this mess in afghanistan this is the kind of sh- shit that you're going to see in the world yeah that's a great really great point i'm so glad yeah. you brought that up drew absolutely yeah i mean i for me uh the jury's still out with biden we'll mm-hmm. see what happens because there is potential to make this somewhat better not certainly not right but there is and that's because i mean the taliban are very very dependent the country of afghanistan has no cash they have no money there and they were getting a who was paying the salaries for the government employees the school teacher it was us right united states and and and, and japan right japan too and so they got no money they have no at all and this this is the the hook that you know the world can say look guess what we'll give you aid we'll give you support but you need to do human rights and you and you have to do this and that and and there's a potential there for the united states biden's administration to lead that effort for the world to do that and if he does that if they do that then i'll say okay it was a good move if he doesn't then he's going to deserve condemnation for at least that part of it i think oh sorry go ahead joe I agree with both of you guys. It was time to get out, and it's there was no easy decisions. And I think probably ultimately weighing everything, getting out was the right call, right? But let's do the best we can to mitigate the damage here because the damage is tremendous. Agreed. Yeah, I think we have a moral and ethical obligation to do that. It's not even really a question mark. Like if you had it up to me, you go to you know somehow tell every Afghan and say like, look, if you want to come to the United States, you can, right? Like a lot of people won't, right? For, in fact, most people won't, but a lot of people will. And I mean, like in a perfect world, I think that is the ethical thing to do because we have irreparably or not irreparably, but we have so dramatically changed the trajectory of that country's, of that country's development. Um, and 20 years is a long ass time 20, 20, 20 years of bomb of American bombs is a long ass time, um, right? 
I think that we owe it to them. And, and but that's different, obviously, from the political, the political question, right? And I mean, I think it's really interesting that on the right there is a rift going on on the right about immigration, right? Because you have these sort of like beat drum beating hawkish people who are like, no, we got to help people. These are this. These are the deserving immigrants this is the exact kind of deserving immigrants at which I hate that fucking shit. Like, you know, like, but, but then on the other hand, you have like the Marjorie Taylor greens who are just like, fuck all Brown people. I don't care what they did. They don't deserve to be here and they're terrorists. So, right. um, so it's interesting to see how that, it will be interesting to see how that issue develops, mm. um, for, for the midterms, especially because this is going to be like, this is going to be a really interesting question, but, but, but I do think Joe, because the, the strategy for the Biden administration was basically allow the Afghan forces to withdraw to the big cities, right? And then we'll defend them like fortresses. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we will uh, be doing diplomatic stuff. We'll be pushing them with carrots and sticks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the first part of that plan did not work out, right? No. They uh, So now we are behind the eight ball and all of that. So we'll see how it goes. Again, um, I do tend to support the Biden approach here, but, and I think that I think there's a level of bravery uh, for for just doing it, right? Just ripping the Band-Aid off, like knowing that the criticism is going to be fast and furious, and it should be if it's bad, absolutely should be. Um, but in any event, I, I, I don't want to keep going on this just because we are sort of short on time. Um, so let's, it was just a great conversation, guys. Let's move on. Uh, now to our to our guest segment, I'm pleased to welcome to the show my friends Stephanie Holler and Gwyn Kruger for a discussion about social justice in the healthcare industry. I'm super stoked to get the perspective of people with extensive experience living and parenting in non-white and or non-binary bodies. So without further ado, The Radical Secular presents Stephanie and Gwyn. Hello, and welcome to the Too Late Show segment on the Radical Secular Podcast. My name is Christoph Defoe, and I'm here to tell you unequivocally that it is just too fucking late. Today, my friends Stephanie and Gwyn have joined me for a discussion about social justice in the American healthcare system. How the hell are you two doing? And tell us about your t-shirts. Doing great. Um, I have a Black Wall Street t-shirt. just yes. sort of commemorates the businesses in Oklahoma. Uh, that were burned to the ground. Uh, so maybe that'll be taught one day. Thank God. Thank God. I love that t-shirt. Awesome. And uh, Gwyn, how about you? I'm wearing uh, my Meetup uh, Pride shirt. So I work for Meetup. Um, I'm the director of customer experience there. And um, I'm part of the employee research group, Meetup Pride. So we have a lot of pride. I just wanted to represent that today. Awesome. Awesome. And I already did my t-shirt earlier in the show, but I'll do it again. Um, I said I wasn't going to do it again, but I'm going to do it again anyway. Um, and the big joke was that I'm wearing the band t-shirt to the show, which you're never supposed to do. Um, but it is my um, intersectionality uh, t-shirt, pro-trans, pro-LGBT, pro uh, pro uh, civil rights, frankly. Um, so, well, anyway, we're, we're really glad to have you guys here, uh, you both here. Um, it's out fucking standing to have you here. Let's just jump into it with just getting some background on you two. Um, how do you two know each other? I'll let Gwyn just uh, start us off. Yeah, I mean, we, Stephanie and I live in the same um, suburbia uh, bedroom community of New York City um, and out in South Orange, Maplewood, New Jersey. And so you just know, you 
get to know everybody in your town and then you whittle down like who do you actually want to be friends with and so <laughs> that was definitely like one of the first and maybe some of the only people that i want to be friends with out here <laughs> yeah yeah the suburbs experience is an experience isn't it i mean and i know that Right. I know that Maplewood is is a great suburb. Right. I drive through there. There's like Black Lives Matter sort of posters all over the place, like South Orange, the entire area, like right. The entire Essex County area, that sort of really cool little suburb of of New York is is pretty good. But I mean, I wonder, though, do you, either of you like how comfortable do you feel there? I mean, I guess that's the question, right? Like, I mean, I, I grew up in the suburbs, right? So, I mean, and my suburbs were a little bit different. My suburbs were were conservative, definitely red country, New Jersey, for sure. Um, and it was also the 90s and not 2021, right? And so it was, it was definitely a different experience. But I wonder, like, do you like I mean, how, frankly, accepted do you feel as 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 non-traditional suburbanites in some way? I mean, I think that I feel like I, I feel comfortable, but I, it's it's like any other town. You know, sometimes I joke with people about like just missing the outward honesty of the rural Midwest. You know, mm. no one has a flag outside the shop or any place. You know, um, I'm not going to the country club. Uh, but everyone assures me that I would be welcome there. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel comfortable, but yeah, I, I just feel like it's uh, it's a more polite uh, than some other places I've lived. And, and speaking of which, I want to follow up on that. Rural Indiana, right? Yeah. Like, what was that like? <laughs> I've lived in rural Montana. Right. And I know what that was like. So what was rural Indiana like? I mean, I, I loved, I loved, absolutely loved parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's, had I, had I stayed there, I never would have known uh, what I was missing. Mm. Um, I was intent on not staying there. Um, you know, it's, it's just, <sighs> Like I love it and I don't want to trash talk it too bad, but it's Fair just, enough. you know, there's, there's not like tons of diversity. I hear that it's changing now, uh, where I went to high school, uh, is where, you know, mayor Pete, uh, was mayor South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and so it, it's undergone a lot of change, uh, since I was last there, but like, you know, there were just whites, blacks and all Hispanics or Mexicans is what it felt like. Uh, sure. And then to come to a different area, to come out east was just like culture shock to the nth degree. Um, and I, I just loved every bit of it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I joke, I, I would like, you know, I could see being in the Midwest for like certain phases of life. Like it's a great place to like just be a kid, run wild. You know, I, you see an eight year old by themselves out here and it's like something's wrong and someone's about to call the cops. Uh, <laughs> but in, in the Midwest, you could just be. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had a similar experience in Montana, right? I mean, I would say the same thing that it's a great place to be a kid. You can do whatever you want. Your, your kid, your parents really can just open the door and just kick you out in the morning and you'll be back at night. You may maybe get eaten by like a wolf, right? Like, <laughs> like, like that might be, you're like in the food chain. So I guess there's like sort of that concern. <laughs> but 
but you don't but but it's a great place right you can do outdoor activities stuff that you just can't do uh, certainly i live in jersey city new jersey i certainly wouldn't want my kid out all night all day around here they might just get by a car there's a million things that could go wrong um now uh gwen so where have without going into any details you don't want to but like where have you lived have you lived in this area your entire life or yeah yeah i'm actually from like 20 minutes from here in okay. a slightly like more like white um pinkish or purplish mm. area um of essex county okay. roseland in the Caldwell. ah uh, yes sure uh -huh. yeah um, and, but then I moved like when I was like in my early twenties, I moved to the city in Brooklyn and spent a good 15 years and then got married and, um, we have a kid. And so we moved back and this was the area we were like, if we're going to move back. This is the spot to move back to. And while I don't disagree with that, you know, my past self, um, I've <laughs> had the real, the honeymoon is over in terms mm -hmm. of how liberal and, um, sorry, my you know, how liberal this area is. Yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. understand that. It, it like the reality sort of starts to settle set in a little bit. Right. Um, and, and relatedly, and so I, I want to sort of ask you both a question it relates to all of our experience in some sense, but I want to pose it to you two first. And so none of the three of us are heteronormative white men who live in the United States. And that means almost by definition that our lives have involved some level of adversity related to the fact that we're not heteronormative white men who live in the United States. So what, if anything, do you want to express to our audience about the experience of being you? What do most people not understand or miss about your experience? And so, you know, go ahead and, and, and just have fun with that. Gwen, you want to go first? Sure. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the person that you see, like how I present on this screen, um, you know, I started transitioning in a medical way, like only a year and some change ago. So like <laughs> before that, I presented as a very masculine woman like like assigned at birth uh assigned female at birth person so like some people would know me and i identified for a really long time as a butch lesbian um so like now you know when i meet people who like strangers who don't know me they think they assume that i'm uh, a cis guy most of the time at this point and that is like absolutely not my experience so it's just <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a trip to be both living in this reality that like on one level, some level, like I always really wanted that and want, and, and I, and, and felt internally like that. Um, but that hasn't been my experience at all. So, and I'm shaped, you know, we're all shaped by our experiences. So it's just, um, I have this unique experience that people don't necessarily, they don't know that I've had it. And so it's just more than meets the eye, you know? Yeah, that is uh, really powerful, you know, and, I, one of the themes that we've we've been talking about over the course of this show and the earlier segment and what I'd like to and what I've sort of envisioned us getting to, especially when we get to your article, Stephanie, is this idea of being seen. Right. And I think one thing that in my experience is, you know, right, I am, you know, a cisgendered uh, male, black male. Um, but, you know, my and, and but I think that and I know we all know that right when people see us they 
make a, a, a like a, a cascading cascading assumptions about us based and not just us i mean anybody right but 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 certainly um us right based on what they think what what they think a black man is what they think a white a white man is what they think a uh what they think a trans man or woman is um and i think that and um and it's really hard, I think, and it's even hard to even for me to even put it into words. And I'm obviously fumbling with it now, but it's hard to put into words what the feeling is of of having this that mismatch of feeling like certain way on the inside where I'm like, I my experience as a black man is a little bit wonky, right? Like I don't talk like a black guy, right? I didn't grow up around black people. I grew up around all white people, right? And my experience is like the the experience of like a suburban white kid. Like that is my experience, right? And people look at me and they're like, and anyway, so I I, I can identify um, to some extent with that sort of mismatched feeling um certainly less so um uh, from uh, from what i understand but uh, but nevertheless and and now stephanie i wanted to give you an opportunity to 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 talk a little bit about 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 that as well Any yeah i think uh you know glenn really hit it with the more than meets the eye you mm-hmm. know i was uh thinking about a meeting i was on earlier and i'm on this senior leadership team at work i'm a SVP at an advertising agency. And I was about to ask a couple of questions, but first I did my like internal check and preparation for my tone, you know, because mm-hmm. I've been told like I'm abrupt or can be like brash. And, you know, this question could very well come off as criticism, you know, that's unwarranted. So let me just do a little tone check before. I asked the question and there's been some times where I'm like, the question's not worth it. Um, but yeah, I would say that the just more than meets the eye in terms of, like you mentioned, uh, the cascading assumptions and uh, we're doing the calculus. Um, and even those that are close to us, uh, they only get exposed to so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm married, my husband, as uh, a white male older than me and you know he might reference something from you know when i was like in my 20s or something or a stating it's like why would i have brought that up to you you were just a guy i was dating <laughs> you think I just bring this up to everyone <laughs> no, like, <laughs> it's, just, it's not that like my views on the subject change you like your level change your importance change and right. now you get this level of information um, wow, so that's powerful, man. That's that, having that's, those conversations. That's so powerful, right? Because I remember I had this guy that I was friends with, in uh, that I was friends with when I was young, and we were very close. And um, and I was, you know, def- like again, my experience is very much being the only black person. Like that is that defines the you. You were saying when like how your experiences define who you are. And that's absolutely right. Like that is that ends up being the bread and butter in some ways of who I am. So, you know, I I, I had this friend way back in the day, and um, and I and we were walking down the street, and we we smoked cigarettes back then, right? Uh, right. We were young, and we drank and smoked pot, and we smoked cigarettes. That's what we did. Um, we were like sixteen, you know. And um, <laughs> I and, to that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. I'll, yeah. Yeah, I bet you we all do in some way, right? <laughs> um, um, so, you know, we were walking down the street and like, it was a parliament. Remember how, you know, parliaments have the recessed filter, you know, and, it, and when it got wet, like the filter would kind of like 
after. And he was, and he was, and he said, oh, and he he handed the cigarette to it to another friend, and he said, I n word lipped it, but he didn't say n word, right? And he said that in front of me at the time, and I didn't say anything at the time because I was a black guy, black kid trying desperately to not be to stand out. Try not to stand out, right? Trying to not be black in some ways, right? And so I didn't say anything then. And um, um, but then randomly, not randomly, but one of my friends got married. One of our mutual friends got married, and he called me like the night before just to like talk or whatever. And at the end of that conversation, I said, "You know what?" And it just popped into my head. I was just like, "You said that to me," and I never forgot that. And that was really fucked up. And he was like, "Why are you bringing this up now? Why are you bring this up now?" And to your point, Stephanie's like, "I don't know." This is just when it became important enough for me to talk about it. And I don't owe it to you. I don't owe you an explanation for that, right? I mean, like, this is just when it seemed relevant to me. And here we are. We're having this conversation, right? <laughs> um, anyway, um, I, I want to talk now about the article specifically, um, the one that you penned, Stephanie, which was published on PharmaLive.com. And we'll put a link to the article in the show notes uh, will you tell us a little bit about your article and uh, what would you like our audience to take away from it? I know what I took away from it, but I but I would like you to talk about Curious what to you hear that. <laughs> I got a lot from it. I thought it was a great, great. I mean, I read the article and like immediately texted you right after I was like <laughs> coming on the show. So I, I got something out of it. <laughs> um, it was just like a culmination of experiences and uh, relationships, you know, namely Gwen, uh, in my work in advertising, uh, we're often, you know, the, the client knows the audience that they're trying to reach. Sometimes we do, uh, research to determine if that's truly their audience, but for the most part, it's how can we most effectively reach this audience, communicate this message. And I deal a lot with healthcare. And we were working on this account where uh, the, the prevailing thought was that they needed to say her and she over and over and over to make it feel more personal, to help the physicians feel connected to the patients. And you can help her with this. And when she comes to you, just over to, and, you know, just after enough like conversations and exposure, it's. It hit me and I felt like a moron. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> my friend is missing from this. Mm. <laughs> it's like, so like, would they ever be talked to? Or no, they would just be missed completely. Like, well, that's mm. sort of shitty. And so I, you know, like volunteered and said, you know, I, I think we're, we're missing some of the audience, you know. Uh, not everyone, uh, you know, who qualifies for this would identify as female, would identify as a woman. And they're just like, yeah, you know, this is not really the place right now. Why don't, why don't you like write a POV? You know, that's half a brush off. (laughs) (laughs) Half a good suggestion to just say, like, prove it, you know, prove it's not just something you're saying, but there's some actual meat behind it. And so I just went about doing some of the research. I, I talked to Gwen some and and uh, he got involved and it just took off from there. Yeah, I thought, like I said, I thought it was really good. I, I, I one of the, first of all, I love the sort of action items that you, that you suggested at the end, right? Because so often pieces like this, 
Uh, I think we can be on this show can be um, uh, guilty of this as well, which is sort of just pointing out problems without pointing out solutions, um, right? I think the, th the you know that is something that is super annoying. It is not useful. I mean, it's just like, all right, great. So the world is shitty. And what can we like right now? What do I do? Do I just go home and feel shitty about this? Right? Like, so I really appreciated that. I thought that the um, I thought it was very powerful how you brought in the Gillette ad, right? And and how, right, having uh having trans folks in the in, in, in the Gillette ad and how that's so powerful. Um Gwen, I want to ask you too, and because um, I, I before I comment on it, was there any element or idea in Stephanie's piece which you could with that you could identify with particularly? Was there a sentence that made you say, oof, I felt that one in my gut? Yeah, I mean I think um <laughs> there's so much there's so much of it that it was almost educational to me, like as weird mm -hmm. as that might sound, um, <laughs> you know, just even going through this process. Like, I think I had mentioned to Stephanie, a, a, a visit that I, I took to go to, you know, see my primary care physician. And then it was just like kind of an awkward visit, um, talking about sort of like transitioning. And then, you know, I think just like listening to Stephanie talk about how, you know, the origin story of this work for her, that it was like, she, she, her, she, she, her. And like, that is a, for, as a trans person, like that is, a, you know, sort of like death by a thousand cuts to be oh, in that. a scenario where you're just like <laughs> misgendered and pronouns are just like, you know, the, the wrong pronouns are thrown out in reference to you. It just hurt. Like you feel it every time. And so, you know, I really identify with that. I think from the article, there were a couple of things that I learned. Like, first of all, I didn't know that I had a 50% chance of developing cancer. So that was, <laughs> I guess okay, the more right. you know. <laughs> the more you like, know. Like, okay, great. Um, so that was cool. Um, that's cool. Yep. Uh, but I mean, like in all seriousness, like that's, you know, there are so many, I, you know, I can't, I'm generalizing here, but I know anecdotally that there's so many trans folks who don't want to go to the doctor because of that situation that I just described of just totally being misgendered or having to assume their old, you know, the, the gender that they were assigned at birth um, to just kind of like not have a hard time or make it, you know, not feel like they're imposing on the staff or the doctors. Um, and, you know, that idea of the privilege, privilege of an irrefutable identity mm. that Stephanie talks about in the, in the piece is, you know, that's, that's the thing that I think I'm still processing that coming out as trans, you know, before I, I, before I came out as trans, I did, people could, would see me and they did understand, they, they could gather things about my story or, or who I was based on looking at me, sort of. <laughs> they could make <laughs> and maybe be right. And now it's like, they're, it's just, you know, I just, it's just so interesting because it's like people, I don't have an irrefutable identity for a lot, for, for a lot of folks unless they know me very well and are and and i really like let them in and they've been a part of my my journey so it's just interesting like my doctor is not that person <laughs> you know, <and laughs> right, nor, nor right. should they be nor should they be right. you know so so like they need to kind of adjust um how they're approaching it and you know i think as we'll get into but i think the beautiful thing that stephanie did is was mentioned um was like it's an action plan it's mm -hmm. a real action plan there's a responsibility matrix there are action steps. So like you can actually go and action from her piece, the things that need to happen for there to be real change. Yeah. And I, that's what I, you, 
all of what you said is very powerful. But you said in the, in the end there was really powerful. What jumped into my mind when you were talking about the pronouns, etc. And this is something that, frankly, that I think is a I think this is for even for those of us who call who think of ourselves as progressives and those of us who really want to understand the experience of those of us who are not uh, who have different experiences than us. Um, you know, it can be tough. We we are like and, and it's 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 fitting that the name of the piece was Break the Binary because it's so easy for right because right they're using an, an analogy <clears throat> like like good old like good old like old school you know uh, uh progressives even would say oh who is the man in that lesbian relationship right as if somebody has to fit into these categories right so you might be trans but you can't be non-binary because we don't we can't even understand that like you can't be a they you have to right sure you can transition from he to she but you're still transitioning from one binary to another binary in some sense right and that i think is a is something that is that is that that we really is like hit on i think in the piece and something that i think is that you know, I can imagine, I can only imagine being on the, being on the inside and hearing some being misgendered and, and being even as you are right now, right, presenting as, presenting as a he, right? But that's not, but it's a little more complicated than that, right? It, 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 that doesn't really fully tell the whole story. And this gets back to my theme, which is like this idea of being seen for who you are right and and how that can be and i think it's really fascinating gwen that it's actually in some senses gotten harder as you have felt as you have presented differently that's i think that's a really sort of interesting twist in all of this yeah i, I mean i and you you mentioned something like the non-binary pieces that's a huge part of this because there mm -hmm. are many folks who may be perceived as being as presenting a particular way um, who identify as non-binary and use they, them pronouns or some, um, you know, sometimes do or sometimes don't. And they're not, that aspect of them is not seen at all. It's not right. because you have to really ask and you have to really know how to kind of, I, I mean, I remember the first time anybody asked me what my pronouns were, that was, or, or I think they introduced themselves with their pronouns and then they were like, what are, you, what are your pronouns? And I was like, and that wow. started me on like a huge journey, you know, wow. like I was at the time using she, her pronouns. And I was like, what are my pronouns? And actually that was, at, that was when I started working at Meetup. So, uh. you know, that kind of environment that opens up, you know, that possibility where you don't have to be, you know, you, we're not assuming that everybody is a he or everybody is a she. It could be, it could be any, um, you know, that's a, a beautiful space to live in, I think. And it, it offers that um, inclusion. And yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. I, I love that. I really do. I'm sorry, Stephanie, go ahead. No, I was just thinking about like your t-shirt depot and uh, the intersectionality as, you know, Gwen was talking about the sort of like mind being blown, you know, I've just been so accustomed, uh, you know, looking at race, thinking of race, I will watch Scooby-Doo and be like, how are they in New Orleans and there are no black people? <laughs> I don't know how that's a thing. And my kids New Orleans are like, is all black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my kids are like, let it go, mom, let it go. But like, and then to like have eyes like further open and be like, oh, and there's like so much more I'm not missing. I mean, 
to have conversations with my colleagues about, you know, we just have to help the physicians know how to treat people, how these people want to be treated. And and when you talk about the binary, you know, like transition from one binary to another, it's because our thinking is just, it's so stuck in that. I'm like, mm-hmm. so basically the question is, do you want to be treated like a guy or treated like a girl? Oh like, my God, what a like, great point. How, how do you want to be treated? What words can I use with you? Have touch, no touch. How about you don't touch anybody? How about that one? How about like, and so there's just all these, all these things that go with it. And as people ask questions or they like reflect something back to me, I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's like taking it even deeper. That's such a great point. And it, that's such an interesting thing that what you said right now, we're, intersectionality, right? Patriarchy, right? We're talking about this idea now that's like, all right, so if you're a woman, I'll treat you this way. And if you're a man, I will treat you this way. And that might be a subtle difference, but it is a difference, right? And the, this sort of, this non-binary thinking and thinking on perhaps a spectrum, thinking non in non-binary terms is a challenge for all of us, I think, to look at how we, how gendered our entire experiences. Like everything we do is so gendered. <laughs> it's like, it's putting a big mirror up to us, I think. Um, you know, I want to go back to what you said too, Gwen, you know, I can't imagine like the the experience of going, of being afraid to go to the doctor, right? Like because I mean, and, and I'm I'm just going to connect this to because a lot of Black folks have had really shitty experiences historically with doctors, right? I mean, the Black community has been terrorized by doctors um, in the past, and and so I want and, and I imagine for trans folks and frankly the entire LGBTQ community uh, plus community there is I, I'm sure a like intergenerational pain and and mistrust when it comes to um, the medical establishment I would imagine so I, I I mean I don't know and I wonder if you can comment on that and if you have any personal experience with that or, or folks that perhaps that you know or or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, living so, you know, living so close to New York City, I've always, I've been privileged enough, right. lucky enough. I mean, it's a privilege, it shouldn't be, to be able to go to centers like Helen Lord, mm-hmm. where, you know, they're incredible. Um, it's, it's centered around healthcare for LGBTQIA communities. Um, and so, you know, even when I started to transition, there's a great center here in New Jersey in Somerville called the the Proud Center at Robert Wood Johnson Hospital. Um, but you know, I, that's not convenient for me to go there like every time I need to go to the doctor. So I have a primary care physician in Summit or in Livingston, and you know, it's been uh, like a, you know going there <laughs> to visit. I think that's like what I first mentioned to Stephanie about right. this was like sharing my experience. Like the doctor was just like she's a fine doctor. Like she's as fine a doctor as <laughs> they exist, but she has no experience with trans folks. And so she's, you know, her question to me when I was sharing, you know, I'm transitioning. She was like, well, what's your end game? It's <laughs> like, I don't like at that time. I mean, I, I, and even now, like, I don't know what my end game, like there is no end game. Like I, like I said, I joke, like I'm going to die one day. <laughs> um, right, right. That's obviously going to happen. I don't that's know. The end game. <laughs> um, for all of us. Uh, but, but you know, even that kind of question, which is like relatively innocuous, but it's just like a, what is the purpose of that? Like, what are you asking me? Like, I don't understand. I mean, I, I think what she was, 
trying to get at was kind of what Stephanie was alluding to. Like, how should I treat you? Do you want to be treated like a guy? I'm not like I right now don't have like I have health concerns that are related to being assigned female birth. So right. I need to be able to go to a place where I can get um, gynecological treatment and, you know, breast exams and whatever. Mm-hmm. And not like I don't I make it as kind of like, you know, fi- like as safe and not a uh, uh a hard, you know, like a really hard experience or traumatic experience as possible. Usually when I have to do those things, I go to the, to the proud center. I see. Um, but you know, for folks who are living in different States that don't have that kind of access, you know, and even what we're seeing now with the trans youth and the legislation against, you know, life-saving hormone blocking therapies. Um, it's, it's a real, I mean, this is a real time when people, you know, are there's a lot of uh, of ex- exclusionary legislation um, out there that's that's really going to harm folks um, if if action isn't taken swiftly. Um, yeah. You know, kids, kids. When I say kids, I mean like the youth, the trans sure. youth. You know, having access to be able to block hormone to, to hormone blockers at, at a particular age can be the difference between life or death. Um, and wow, having yeah. doctors who can understand those issues. Um, they, they're lifesavers. They're literally lifesavers. So the more we can start training our medical establishments to not think in terms of gender and to think in terms of, of the well-being of the patient, the better. Yeah, that's well, so well said. So well said. Bravo, bravo, bravo. <laughs> so well <Yeah>. said. <laughs> um, you know, the uh, the I, I couldn't possibly agree more. I, there was two things that jumped into my mind then. Jumping First of all, to the I mean, right, the, the astronomical suicide rate uh, among trans folks and um, uh, uh, black trans women, the deaths are just I, 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 I mean, it's like more dangerous than being a soldier in Iraq. Like it's it's like it's bad. It's really, really bad. I don't have to tell you that. Um, but that is perhaps a little more obvious than the I mean, to the extent that that's obvious, uh, it's obvious to us. It's not obvious to a lot of people. But um but the death by a million paper cuts that you mentioned before, that that really was I, I felt that one because it's about those microaggressions, right? That's really what daily day-to-day life is like. It's like, right, I people ask me about racism as a black person. I say, I, I don't walk around hearing the N-word all the time, right? Like I don't even walk around seeing like straight up racism all the time. I mean, I do. I mean, I see white supremacy all the time, but that's like kind of low-key in the background, right? It's not like that's always there, it's always been there. It's one of those things, uh, Stephanie, that most people I won't even talk to about it, right? But like sometimes if it comes up, it comes up for whatever reason. But it's the little comments. It's the, it's the, it's the, like, for, like, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of identifying a little bit with your, uh, with the misgendering thing, right? With the, with the, with the, with the mispronoun, the, the, the wrong pronouns, the misgendering, um, whether that be intentional or intentional, that sort of stuff, the one little cut doesn't hurt, but that builds the fuck up. It really, really does. And I've had those moments where I've just like lost it. Like somebody might say something. Yeah. And it's just like, you happen to be the wrong guy on the wrong day, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And like months of this is built up, right? And I'm just like, what the fuck? Do, where the fuck do you get off, right? Um, and I think that's hard for a lot of folks to, 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 to wrap their mind. I think a lot of folks can wrap their mind around straight up homophobia, straight up transphobia, straight up racism. But I think it's hard for some folks, um, to be honest, white folks, white men, really, um, you know, cisgender white men to really wrap their mind around that. 
I don't yeah. have any other comment. I'm just <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I'm just offering that up to the ether, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> I, I, you know, recently had somebody, you know, reach out to me because they were just feeling completely overwhelmed with just exactly what you just said. It had just built up, and everybody reacts differently when they hit that point. Yes, some people are angry, and and you know, will scream in somebody's face or whatever. Some people will just. They just go inward and, you know, it's, it's so damaging any way you cut it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a real, you know, it's really hard and it really does add up and it's can be anywhere from like, I'm afraid to come out to my family. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid or I came out to my family, but they refuse to use my, my, um, my pronouns. They always dead name me. Um, feeling, you know, unseen at work, feeling unseen in society like it's just mm-hmm. you know it's there's already like a general loneliness pandemic happening in the mm-hmm. world across everybody but this is even more lonely i think yeah. Yeah. i think what you mentioned Defo, about you know it just gets pent up you know we we have like our little bank and it's being <laughs> filled and you know like it's max but not everyone like has those things so i give uh like props to like the white men who see that it has to be an active thing like yeah in the same way there's now this conversation about it's not enough to just not be racist you have to be anti-racist like the same is true with you know gender and you know the binary and you know i'll, I'll I'm often bragging on my husband, but like he's been <laughs> he's been reading a lot of books lately. Uh, so, you know, like race is one thing, you know, we have like biracial children and like he knows like, he has to be up on his game with that. But one day we were at the dinner table and we're like, you know, we're something out of like a sitcom because we usually do all eat, you know, seated together. <laughs> and uh, we tease the kids about like their like future partners and spouses. And one day he just like made their spouse like same sex, you know, and I could see like I know I I'll speak for myself. I was sort of like waiting for the reaction, you know, mm-hmm. the thing is, there was none. Huh. There was none. <laughs> it, was like, it was just like and an answer came, you know, it's just like our our eight year old son, nothing. Thirteen year old nothing. It's like did. I don't know if they, maybe he, he wasn't speaking clearly, you know, but like, <laughs> and that's the thing, like, that's the generation coming up, you know, where that's amazing. my daughter thinks that Lil Nas X came out late. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> like, like, okay, okay. okay. Like, it's, it's okay. It's so like, it's a totally different game. So it's like, you know, do you want your children to speak to you? Do you want to see your grandchildren? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You got to watch yourself. You got to watch yourself. And that's actually a great um, uh, sort of uh, a segue <clears throat> into um, the last uh, sort of topic I want to talk about. And um, so I'm not a parent to any children and I don't plan to be, but that doesn't stop me from harboring all kinds of very strong opinions about about how people should parent their kids. Now, you two are both parents of children who could potentially face adversity due to their um, either their identity or the identity of their parents. How do you prepare their your kids for that experience? And how do you instill anti-racist values in their kids? But it almost sounds like you don't have to. 
Probably. Anybody want to take that? I mean, I definitely think I have to. <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a little white boy. <laughs> fair enough. So, fair enough. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say about that right now. <laughs> you got to work extra hard. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't, my kids are going to have a different experience than I had growing up. Um, my, our daughter is very, she's like, she's comfortable speaking up for herself, advocating for herself. You know, she was in the, locker room and middle school and someone used the n-word and she was like you can't say that you're you're not a, a, a white girl used the n-word she's like you're not allowed to say that don't say that and the girl's response was you're like only half black are you wow. <laughs> like, oh. um but you know uh As, but that like i don't understand how that's like a like a refutation of the fact that she couldn't say it like what i mean of course she's a child but still <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, I think like it's with a lot of things, it's like me trying to role model and like provide a structure without controlling and specifically trying to maneuver them because she's also, uh, she's, she's, she's not an extrovert by any means, you know, she really doesn't like uh, controversy or conflict. Um, so it means a lot that she even like spoke up and that's probably more than I would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly and at so, that age, right? Yeah, like, that's like that remarkable age. at that, that age. age. That's remarkable. Yeah. And she's got like all kinds of friends and like, that's something that I like looked for, you know, was that she could see herself, uh, and her friends. Um, and our, our son, you know, he's got like a totally different game where like, you know, he's much closer with his father and, you know, he doesn't identify with like the little black boys in the story, little oh, Jackie Robinson. He's not he's not really seeing himself yet, you know. Uh, so I just have to like watch them over time. But I know one of the biggest things I wanted to do was just like not not visit my baggage upon them, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like until they experience it, even if I'm like convinced about what it's going to be, like let them see it play out, you know, and that's like very difficult to sort of exercise that restraint. But I also try to just get them to see like the privilege that they have regardless, like, you know, she get uh, two parents, like most of her friends, their parents are divorced. Most of them, you're like, there's all these different things going on. Like she's got a lot going for herself, you know? And I don't want that to be the the one thing uh, to define her. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Gwen, does your uh, wife um, it, it, does she identify like like does she identify as um, LGBT or does she like I'm just, I'm just yeah. I, she, I assume so, but I yeah, just don't want to assume anything. Yeah, she queer. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're we're a queer family, <laughs> and she she um she's uh like she identifies as bisexual. Uh huh. Um. And, you know, we're like, in terms of like raising our son, like I, um, I'm called Baba. So my son calls, calls me Baba. Um, and when I say like, he, like, I know parents, um, queer parents who are raising their kids is like non-binary, um, born and they're, they refer to their child as they, mm-hmm. them and pronouns. Um, we did not opt to do that. Um, and, but we are like very open. We, 
we'll sometimes say like, if you know, like we're not like if you wanted to change, you know, but we're very open to whatever, <laughs> whatever he wants. Like we're, you know, we're, he sees me as a non-binary binary person. He refers to me as a person. He um, uses they pronouns. He often doesn't even use pronouns. He just calls me Baba mm-hmm. um, and doesn't say they at all. Um, and you know, he's, um, yeah, we're, he, it's kind of interesting how much of the binary has come into Like he's been, has infiltrated him. Right. Um, cause we're not, you know, we, we don't like hide anything from him and we kind of let him just like go where he wants to go in terms of like television and comic books and whatever. Um, and he's super like sort of typical, like masculine stuff but every now and again he loves lol dolls loves them (laughs) and he you know we're like totally you know he loves to have his nail painted and lipstick and whatever and we're like we're like great you know we don't discourage that ever um and we if anything we encourage it and i think at a certain point like we are always down to have conversations around like you know, we talk about bodies when we talk about our whole, like how he was conceived process. It was, um, you know, my egg, a donor, donor sperm, and my wife carried him. And mm-hmm. so it's a very, very collaborative. Sure. Um, <laughs> talk about that. We talk about bodies. Some bodies have a uterus. Some bodies have eggs. Some bodies have, and it's not about gender. Right. Um, so, so, you know, that's kind of the language and the con- concepts that we're teaching him. Yeah. I love that. I really, really do. I mean, so my wife and I don't have any kids. One thing that we thought about down the road, though, is is adopting. So that that's something that's sort of that's if we do have kids, I think that's what we'll do. Um, <clears throat> and um, and you know that will bring with it, I think uh, it's uh, like a host of its own challenges. Um, a on top of the challenges of having. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the challenges that come with parenting and being a good parent and trying to prepare your children for the world. And, um, you know, I was both of what you said, I thought was really, really interesting. Stephanie, I really loved how you talked about not uh, transferring your baggage to the child, right? Because I mean, that is so what parents do, right? And 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 to some extent, that's going to happen inevitably, because that's just how it works. But to be conscious of that, though, right, to be conscious of that, and especially when it comes to race, right, don't taint these kids, right? Like, you like, I am jaded when it comes to race, because I lived through the 80s and the 90s, right? These kids didn't live through the 80s and the 90s, things have gotten way better. They really, really have. It is really an easier time being a black person today than it was 20 years ago. Definitely. Um, and so why why taint them? And I imagine um, uh, that's even like a million times even more true um, in the LGBTQIA community because, uh, right, just because of the, I mean, in some ways, there's a, I mean, there's a long way to go, but there's been some pretty large steps forward in the last 20 years, I think, um, on, 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 on a host of, on a host of issues. Even the fact that we're sitting here having a conversation about, um, about issues facing trans folks and non-binary folks is remarkable, right? I mean, this would conversation would have been, uh, would have been, um, you know, it would have been hard to find people to have this conversation 20, 30 years ago, for sure. Um, so, well, thank you guys for being here. I, I wish we had more time to talk. Um, uh, it's just been an absolute pleasure. This is the first time we ever did this sort of little segment, and I couldn't have asked for two better 
uh, a better guest to sort of help me carry me across the finish line here. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And um, uh, do you have any final thoughts? No, thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was really an honor to be here for your first your inaugural uh, segment. Um, and this is a really great conversation. Yeah, yeah, same. Thanks so much, Steve. Just happy to have the conversation. Awesome. Well, um, thank you both. Thank you. All right, guys, that is the end of the show. Do either of you have any final thoughts? Joe, you want to go? Yeah, I really enjoyed that clip you did. Uh, it was, you know, just very informative. And I found it very human mm. and very approachable. You know, you guys talked about sort of each of our own perspective. Like, I'm a cisgender white man, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what's my role here? How should I approach this? And basically, it's about humility, yes. right? I just listen because I value a couple of things about knowledge and wisdom, right? I value science and I value life experience. And I don't have that life experience, mm. right? And I, and I am devoted to social justice and human flourishing. So in a humble way, I say, yes, I'm, I'm listening and I, I'm hearing you and I want to know what your life experience is, what, your, what it's been like for somebody who's had those particular, you know, challenges in life. Right, because of their gender, because of their of their the color of their skin, because of their you know uh, lifestyles or whatever mm -hmm. whatever it might be, you know their their orientations, you know that's what we need to do. If we if we're not part of that group, uh, then our our goal and our sort of ethical stance should be to just humbly listen, be open, and receptive to to people's you know concerns. And then from there, act accordingly from that point. And so I'm glad you had, you know, that conversation. Uh, it was wonderful to see. It was really cool. Also a lot funny as well. So <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Joe. And it, it really was great. And, um, you know, uh, everybody should, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed it. And, and, and again, the, the goal, like you said, is to make things very very personal and human and get really connected with people. And I think that the, a one-on-one -on -one style conversation is more conducive to that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes down to as cliche and, and simple as it is, I think it comes down to just the golden rule, you know, mm. just treat people how you want to be treated, you know, certain people's identities or life choices or what have you may not, might not make sense to me, but that's okay. Some of my choices and my personality quirks might not make sense to other people as well. I'm a guy who's got more toys than all of your kids put together. And I've got, <laughs> you know, venomous spiders for pets. So uh, people might think that's very strange, you know, but right. I don't want to be judged for my quirks in the same way that I'm not going to judge anyone else for who they are or what they're about or anything. Just, just don't be an asshole, man. Yeah. You know? Don't be an asshole. And that yeah. is a <laughs> that is a great way to end the show. Um, perfect note, um, frankly. Don't be a fucking asshole. <laughs> Drew yeah. Scott. So remember that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalcycler.com. I'm Christoph Defoe. Thank you for being here. And remember that wherever you are, 
you can be radically secular. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.